Okay, today, because I am preaching on faith promise giving, I will not be in the Gospel of Mark. Uh, today, I'll pick that up next week. But this morning, um, I'm going to look at um, just going a little bit more into depth about this whole thing about faith promise giving. And I usually do it only about once a year. Um, just to get us, give you a sense of that evangelism and missions are... Uh, closely tied together. They're the same thing, actually. One may be uh, more local and the other is more uh, outward in, into other places um, and even into other parts of the world. But this morning, I want to look at... Uh, just take your Bibles, first of all, and turn to um, Acts chapter 1. I'm going to start from there this morning. Acts chapter 1. Now, while you're turning there... The purpose of the church is actually fourfold, and this particular statement in several forms have made it into our membership packet and ministry booklet, so we need to know why the church exists so we can know and implement its mission to this world. The church exists first to worship. Actually, we're saved to worship God. Before we came to Christ, we didn't worship God. We worshiped other things. We worshiped ourselves, but we didn't worship God. When we come to Christ, then we now, in Christ Jesus, can actually worship God and glorify him. So that's the first uh, point of the purpose of the church. The second is to provide a context of loving fellowship with one another for the purpose of mutual edification. So the second purpose of the church is fellowship. God brings us into a body, into a church. Uh, We were pulled out of the world of darkness and placed into the kingdom of light, and therefore God now gathers us together in the church for fellowship. The third purpose of the church is to be a light in this dark world, for the evangelization of the lost. And that's the point that I want to focus in on this morning. A fourth purpose of the church is to be a really a repository of divine truth. Uh, the church exists to be a, an equipping center whereby people can grow through the application of the teaching of the Word of God, and then to utilize their spiritual gifts, the gifts that have been given to them by God, to help edify and build up the body. So the fellowship fellowship in the church body was really specifically designed by God to integrate people from diverse backgrounds and then develop the unity of the Spirit of God amongst God's people, therefore that fellowship in the body life uh, brings us to realize that we belong to the Lord and we are part of his body. So that means through many different personalities uh, and different backgrounds, but with one common uh, thing that ties us together, that we all know Christ. We're drawn together in one heart and one soul, and where there is real fellowship because of Christ, then he will develop a unity amongst us, and then he will develop 
a, a witness, a dynamic witness in our heart for Jesus Christ. So see, this third purpose of the church, of that the church is to be a witness. And if you notice in our text right here in Acts chapter 1, it says in verse number 6, it says, So when they had come together, they were asking him, saying, Lord, is it at this time that you are restoring the kingdom to Israel? That was a very important question for them because Jesus just got done teaching on the kingdom for some 40 to 50 days. And so they're wondering, okay, you're resurrected now. Is the kingdom going to come now? Well, notice how he answers it in verse 7. He said to them, it is not for you to know times and epochs, which the Father has fixed by his own authority. And then verse 8, he says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses, both in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria, even to the uttermost part of the earth. Now, that is commonly also referred to as the Great Commission. That in Matthew 28, the Lord says that you are to go and make disciples of all nations. So the first thing that Jesus mentions with regard to his to discipleship is that we are to go and make disciples, that we're to go uh, locally and reach out with the gospel of Jesus Christ, and we're to make sure that our witness is not just local, but it is global, that we're taking the gospel and we're making sure the gospel goes to other nations and other groups of people. And so that becomes very important to the heart of the Lord, and it should be to the heart of God's people. So going to all the nations with the gospel of Jesus Christ is the beginning of uh, the discipleship process. And going is the first step in that process. So the goal of evangelism is not just to have a long list of converts, but to have sons and daughters in the Lord who have been brought to himself in all walks of life, in all states of our country and all countries of the world. That's the goal of the Lord. It should also be observed that Three persons are always involved in the process of evangelism, namely the missionary or the one telling the gospel or the evangelist, and then the hearer, the someone who's receiving what you're telling them, and then the Holy Spirit. See, they respond to the message through faith. However, it is the Holy Spirit who convicts and is really the divine catalyst for saving faith. Without the Holy Spirit, no one can get saved. He is the one who convicts us of our sin of righteousness and judgment. He lifts Christ up so we realize that God's, the Father's solution to our sin problem and to being, make, being made right with him is Christ. And that's what the Spirit of God does. And so once we all come to Christ, all right, then the Lord at some point lays upon our heart a desire to tell others 
wow, God brought me this truth. I want to tell other people about it. I want, to, I want other people to, to know what I know. And so there are different reasons for doing evangelism, um, or really the issue would be why evangelize at all? Why be involved with missions? Well, there are actually a number of reasons that believers in, uh, would actually engage in evangelism with. It was uh, J.R. Packer who wrote in his book, Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God, secondary reasons on why people would evangelize or tell the gospel to other people. Here's the first one he, he gave. He says, listen, there's going to be the new personal experience of a, of a believer. That means the new convert is excited about his or her conversion experience. So they want to go and tell the gospel to their friends, to their relatives, to their co-workers. And this usually lasts, he said, about 30 to 90 days, sometimes longer, until new believers experience opposition to their message and or, and, or the excitement, at, la- at least at that point, wears off. Or they fear that they don't know enough to be able to continue to communicate what happened to them, all right? And all those things actually take place at some time or another. A second secondary reason given was the involvement of a training program that many older Christians will evangelize when they have been trained to do so. They're assigned to share the gospel. Uh, They're challenged to go out and share the gospel, which they should be. But brethren, even though I am a firm believer uh, in teaching evangelism and also of uh, programs like Evangelism Explosion and The Way of the Master, these are still secondary reasons for evangelism. See, the problem is that people do what is expected and what they are held accountable for. When the the training program is over, the accountability usually ceases and most often the evangelism does also. A third secondary motivation for evangelism would be that of guilt. Many evangelize because of guilt. They do not want to be responsible for anyone's going to hell. And as a result of that person's, uh, you know, not hearing the gospel. So they often are motivated uh, to witness to a close relative or a friend because they are so burdened uh, with guilt that they don't want to Uh, And worried also, they don't want anyone to go to hell. Now, that is definitely something that we should have on our hearts, but it's not really ours uh, to hold. That guilt is too heavy for a human being. Um, It is good at really this point, really for believers to understand God's plan, and really for the ages and the doctrines of grace, which help us to understand God's sovereignty in uh, him electing people to salvation, that God has elected people before the the world was ever created to be in his family and in his kingdom. But our job is to go tell them. In other words, we don't save people. We just tell them the message, right? Uh, If we could save people, we would. 
But in a way, that's not our responsibility. It's God's responsibility to save people. Um, So these three reasons, secondary reasons, may have some validity to them, but all of them are inadequate. They lack a consistent motivation for evangelism. And there are a number of biblical reasons believers should evangelize. And there's at least four primary reasons why we actually should biblically evangelize. And the first one I have, in a sense, already gave you, it's a command of God. See, the primary motivation for evangelism, for doing missions, is obedience to God's command to go. The Great Commission has always been the chief motivation for missions, for cross-cultural evangelism. See, the, And so the command is to go is really clear. The seriousness of God's command must be realized by us because it's not the great suggestion, it's the great commission. We're not to decide to do this. God says, no, do this because I am going to empower you by the Spirit of God to go out and tell others about the gospel. And I know everyone sitting here today, right here this morning, someone told you about the gospel. You just didn't wake up and all of a sudden, boom, it came to you. No, God used someone to communicate the gospel to you. That could have been through different uh, media or different means, but it came to you. And they were faithful to do that, and God used them to bring the truth to you so you can be convicted of your sin and that you can be brought to a place where you understand the gospel and then respond to the gospel. So the believer evangelizes because God has commanded him and her to evangelize. Now, other reasons for evangelism are important, but this command stands alone as really the supreme issue of evangelism. Now, a second, uh, a second primary reason for evangelism is the terrible fate of humanity. Uh, although it, it is true that the main reason for evangelism is the command of God, it is also true that the horrors of eternal punishment in the lake of fire cannot be ignored as a significant motivation for evangelism. See, Jesus tells the story of the rich man and a beggar in Luke chapter 16. While the rich man lived in luxury, the beggar lived in misery and poverty. The rich man had no concern about his destiny, but that changed dramatically when he died and went to hell. See, hell is described by the Lord himself as a place where there is conscious torment and irreversible separation from God. It is a place to be avoided at all costs. And the only way that you can avoid or anyone could avoid going there is the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's it. There's no other way to avoid slipping into a lost eternity without Christ. So the scriptures teach that hell will be a place in the lake of fire and that from that place there is no escape for all eternity, as it says in Revelation 20, uh, verse 14, 
then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And the second death is eternal spiritual death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. So that means this, that eternal punishment is a reality. This is not a fantasy story. This is real. And is, it's obviously a serious matter. It is necessary to be about the business of evangelism and missions. Because people will be separated from God in a place of torment forever if they do not have an opportunity to hear the gospel and to respond to it in faith. So that is a second primary reason. It's not only the command of God, but it's the terrible fate of man. And then thirdly, it's a third primary reason for evangelism is the deep need of man. Man has a deep need. It was in Acts 16 where the Apostle Paul was doing missions, and it says in Acts 16, a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing and appealing to him and saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. When he had seen the vision, immediately he sought to go into Macedonia, concluding this, that God had called him and his team to preach the gospel to those people who needed the help. So the apostle Paul received this vision of the man from Macedonia, begging him to come and help them. So, in other words, that the lost world, they're, they're looking for something. They're looking for something to satisfy their deep inward longings. Even though they may not be aware of it, they are waiting for someone to bring something to them. They need the message of God brought to them. Daily, people hear the bad news that's in the world, in the world system. They long to hear the good news that Christians actually have to give them. And if we don't give them, they won't hear the good news, and therefore they will not be evangelized, at least not by us. See, Paul described the person without Christ in another book, in Ephesians, the unsaved person is separated from God. They're disobedient to God. They live in hopeless despair. They live under the burden of their own sin and even the sins of others that are committed against them. They need this glorious, liberating gospel of Christ. And who's going to give that to them? Is CNN going to give that to them? Is some news media going to give that to them? No, the only people that are commissioned to give the gospel to the rest of the world is the church, the gathered assembly. And so, what is the mark that will cause genuine Christians 
to act differently from all other people? Well, really, there's one specific answer, and this is the fourth primary reason, and I may even switch this one to either the second or the first, and it's this, love for Jesus Christ. Now, I want you to take your Bibles, and I want you to turn to 2 Corinthians Second Corinthians chapter 5, specifically verse 14 onward. So, this fourth primary reason is love, the love of Jesus Christ. If you notice in verse number 14, it says, for the love of Christ controls us. Having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died. Now, see, believers in Jesus Christ are his ambassadors, it's going to say in this passage. They are sent because now they belong to another kingdom, not the kingdom of the world, but the kingdom of God. And therefore, because they belong to the kingdom of God, they're going to represent that kingdom in the world in which they live, which is this world. But they're going to represent Christ with a message. When the love of Christ and the joy of salvation are experienced by the believer and understood by the believer, the desire is for others to experience the same thing. But you notice the motivation here is love. It's the love that Christ demonstrated to you and I on the cross of Calvary. Dying, the just one, Christ, dying for the unjust people, us. Something he was doing on the cross that we could have never done on our own. So that Christ's love in this passage overcame the Apostle Paul. Paul knew the love of Christ, that the love that Christ had for him, because it was demonstrated to him in a most costly way. Paul understood that the only way to be saved is through someone dying in his place as a substitute. And so he understood that Jesus did that, and he became a believer, and he now knew that Christ loved him savingly. So Paul's conception of Christ's love for him held him to the task of not keeping his mouth shut anymore. It overtook him and compelled him to serve Christ wholeheartedly and beyond what is ordinary for a human being. In other words, a true ambassador urges people, if you look down to verse number 20 of 2 Corinthians chapter 5, notice what it says. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ as as through God we were making an appeal through us as though God were making an appeal through us. We beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Do you see the, the urgency there of someone who understands the love of Christ, and now is loving Christ that they 
realize that Jesus Christ is the only answer to be saved and be made right with God. And so what happens is that this ambassador that we all are urges people to be reconciled to God. Do it now. Become friends with God today through Jesus Christ. Take advantage of the peace terms of the gospel and keep begging them to come to Christ. Yes, it's that urgent to beg someone to come to Christ. Also in another epistle, Paul writes, he wrote this to the Corinthians. He says, working together with him, we also urge you to receive the grace of God all right, not to receive the grace of God in vain, for he says, at the acceptable time, I listened to you, and on the day of salvation I helped you. Behold, now is the acceptable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. So, so the urgency, when a person receives or hears the gospel, that really that moment is the time to believe, not to put it off for further reflection. Not to put it off because you're busy doing something, and once you get that done, you'll listen to it and consider it. No, the reason why is because we're not guaranteed tomorrow. We're not guaranteed the next 10 minutes. We have no guarantee that we will be alive this evening. All right, but we do have a guarantee if we know Jesus Christ and we have received the gospel of Jesus Christ, we have a guarantee that he will not only save us but keep us and bring us into his presence. See, so that's the guarantee we have. Other than that, we don't have the guarantee that we're going to live uh, 10 more years or 20 more years or 30 more years. We don't know that. The thing is to live for Christ now. And if you never trusted Christ as your Lord and Savior, now's the day to do it. Now's the day. You know why? Because the Spirit of God is not always going to strive with us. He's not only going to be moving in your heart and moving you to understand the truth. He's not always going to be doing that. Right now in the church age, in this age of grace, it's the gospel seed planting age. We're planting the seed of the gospel everywhere. And you know what? Thank the Lord. And if you've had the privilege of not only witnessing to someone, but seeing them come and believe in Christ and see them change before you because God's seed is now planted in their heart and God's given them their spirit and now they love the word of God and they love Christ and they love his church and they want to tell people about it. There's nothing like that on this side of eternity. That's the most exciting thing to witness, to see God's hand in someone's life. So the cross is terrifying because it was a bloody execution that Jesus' crucifixion shows us that something had gone terribly wrong with the human race. But it also shows us that there is a solution. The Bible tells us about what God has done in order to reconcile sinners to himself. Friends do not need to be reconciled to anyone. Enemies need to be reconciled to someone. We were enemies of God. There's nothing that can reconcile us to God. There's nothing we can do in the realm of good things to 
match what Christ accomplished on the cross. So it's nothing we could have done to save ourselves. It's all because of what Christ has done. It was God who sent Christ. It was God himself who took the initiative so we can be saved. See, the Lord responded to sinful humanity who had nothing to offer him by offering himself as a sacrifice for sin. In that one main text in the Gospel of Mark, for even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. That his sacrifice was meant to propitiate God. And as the result of that, Jesus died to wipe out the guilt of our sins. And so the effect of such a sacrifice was the pardon of the offender and his restoration to communion with the true and living God. So in other words, sin was dealt with in in the substitutionary death of Jesus Christ, and the result of that is that the sins of believers were washed away. The believer is now reconciled to God. Sinners are forgiven and the broken relationship between sinner and the holy, God, the holy God is changed. Christ's love now compels them, compels people to, to give witness to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. So when the love of Christ and the joy of salvation are again experienced by the believer, then what happens in their heart? A desire. I want to see people saved. I want to see people uh, receive the gospel of Jesus Christ. So that means I'm going to pray for them. But that also means I'm going to pray that God would open my mouth, that any opportunity he gives me, I would be able to share with them the gospel of Jesus Christ so they can know that they can be right with God. And this is how you're right with God. And most people don't know that. Matter of fact, it's, it's not common knowledge out there how to be made right with the living God. They think they are being right by being a good person or by doing good things or by going to a church or by doing the sacraments. See, they think there's these religious systems, which are really works-based systems. They're just trying to work their way to be right with God, and they're going to find out that's not how you're you're not right with God, by working your way to God. You're right with God by God extending to you free grace that you believe by faith in Christ Jesus, and that's how someone gets saved. God's done it all. We're to believe in him. And when we believe, then we get the fuller understanding and knowledge of what he he did for us on the cross. And the the more the cross is magnified in our mind, the greater love we have for Christ. And the greater love you and I have for Christ, the more we desire other people to be saved. Matter of fact, that becomes a major part of our prayers. I'm praying for my nephew, I'm praying for my sister and my mother and my father and my aunts and my neighbor next door who are living in darkness, and they, they, they're doing all right, you know, financially, and, and uh, in their life, they're, they're pretty much, they're, they found some segment of happiness, but the thing is, is that if they die without Christ, that's a horrible thought. And see, and again, we don't save them. 
We tell them. God saves them. And sometimes you tell people, and if it's like talking to the wall here. Nothing happens. You know, you can bang your head against the wall, and they still are, they're not getting anything. And I'm, I thought I was as clear as I could be. And, and then you're stumbling over your words one day, witnessing to somebody, and they're bowing their head in prayer, asking Christ to save them. It's really, see, and then you realize, you know what, it's not, it's not you. you. You don't have any particular skill to save anybody, but you do have your testimony that you can tell them about how God saved you, and you do have certain knowledge of the points of the gospel that you have to tell them that, listen, you need to deliver, be delivered from your sin. You have to tell them about the grace of God and the, the solution the Father has is Jesus Christ and that you have to believe it by repentance and faith. You can tell them those things, and when you tell them, the Spirit of God does the rest. He brings a person to saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. So when I have this love for Christ, I, wa- I want you to notice what it says in 2 Corinthians for a minute. Look at verse number 15. There's several things that happen when someone understands love for Christ. And here's the first thing that happens, that love for Christ moves the believer to a new sphere where they no longer live for themselves. Notice what it says in verse 15. And he died for all so that they who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. That's pretty clear, isn't it? Why, why do I evangelize? Because I love Christ. Why do I love Christ? This is what he did on my behalf. And so I'm motivated to do that. See, in Christ, believers experience not only death to sin, but also resurrection to righteousness. They are changed. They are constrained by his dislove. And now to live for the one who died for us in our place and rose to give us real life. So our whole life interest should center in on Christ and not ourselves. We were so preoccupied with ourselves, But when you come to Christ, you're preoccupied with with Christ. Even what Paul said in Philippians 1-2, for me to live is Christ, and to die is what? Gain. See, his whole perspective on living was Christ. Yes, people of the world think you're weird and strange, and, and they have all certain names for you, some things you can't mention. Uh, but nonetheless, when you are convinced in Scripture that this is what has taken place, Your love for Christ just increases. The second thing in verse 15 that happens, the love of Christ moves the believer to a new sphere where they no longer look at people in a fleshly way. Notice what it says in verse 16. It says, therefore, from now on, we recognize no one according to the flesh. Now, that's very, very important for an ambassador for someone who's going to be an evangelist, someone who's going to tell people about Christ. People are not looked at anymore as Jew or Gentile, bond or free, poor, pagan, barbarian, nor by their skin color, red or yellow or brown or black or white. See, we are... Love has gone beyond prejudice to 
the soul that is created in the image of God. This whole race card today that's played in our government is very destructive. They never get past that. But in the church, we better get past that because it is not about any of those things. It's about the soul. It's about the soul that was created in the image of God. It's the soul that Christ died for. The soul is eternal. See, we don't look at people anymore that way. We look at people as being lost and in darkness and in the bondage of their sin and alienated from the life of God and under God's wrath. That's how we look at people. See, people who are in a desperate need for what they don't know they need, the word of God and the gospel of Christ, and we can give them hope. See, we are given the ministry of reconciliation and we make our appeal to sinful humanities as if God himself was making the appeal through us. And here's that verse again in verse number 20. It says that, therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ as though God were making an appeal through us. We beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. See, in other words, see, the Lord changes our whole perspective on not only how we look at ourselves, not only how we look at other people, not in a fleshly way, even not in a way maybe we were brought up with, but in a new way, in a way that pleases the Lord, and it, it transcends all boundaries. I can go to any country in the world and preach the gospel. It doesn't matter how they dress. It doesn't matter what they eat. It doesn't matter how they look. It doesn't matter what they do for a living. Anyone, any Christian who understands this can go to any people group and share the gospel. And when somebody becomes a believer, they can become part of your family and fellowship because you have a common bond, and that bond is Jesus Christ. See, then there's a, a third thing that happens when we grow in our love for Christ. In verse 16 of 2 Corinthians 5, the love of Christ moves the believer to a new sphere where they no longer look at Christ in a fleshly way. Even, it says in the middle of the verse, verse 16, even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, Yet now we know him in this way no longer. See, many known Christ according to the flesh, meaning that he was a great man, he was a religious leader and teacher, he was a great prophet, uh, he was a righteous man, or people who are simply ignorant of him and ignore him. Some are filled with foolish, pernicious, vicious thoughts of him. And if you just think about the Apostle Paul, this proud Pharisee who had been mad in his efforts to stamp out the name of Christ and hated Christ as a false Messiah, we see that he comes on the road of Damascus and he trusts in Christ as his Lord and Savior. So when he was overcome by the love of the one whom he once hated. He no longer viewed Christ in a fleshly way. He no longer viewed people as Jew and Gentile. Now Christ was the object of his love and service. Christ's love enveloped and consumed him. And then one other last thing about this is that the love of Christ moves the believer to a whole new sphere. In verse number 17, the verse that we always quote, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things passed away, and behold, new things have come. 
that when somebody believes, their whole life is going to change. Their whole worldview is going to change. And in this case, their view of Christ is going to change. Their view of people is going to change. Their view of their own sinful motives is going to change. And it's going to be realigned that it would become new, that Christ would be all in all, and that the motivation for their life would be to go into a dark world and bring them the light of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So they're going to want to do that, but they're also going to want to, let's say they can't go to a foreign country. They can assist missionaries who will go into different fields of the world with the saving, rescuing gospel. So according to 3 John chapter 7, there are three reasons to send and to assist missionaries who go out into the world with the gospel. Three reasons, and they're very simple reasons, and I just want to mention them to you. In verse 7, of course, 3 John is just one book. That's 3 John is at the end of the Bible, right before Revelation. Um, but the first one is this, is... They are engaging in the work for his name. It says in verse 7, The name, for they went out for the sake of the name. All right, in that passage, verse 7. And another passage, of course, in the book of Acts, it says in verse 15, Men who risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. See, often missionaries and uh, preachers leave their roles in life and give themselves to the work of God. So in a sense, these are kind of a special breed of believers because they take the full revelation of Jesus Christ to those who have not yet heard. They proclaim the gospel and bring it the gospel to people who have not heard about faith in Christ yet. They proclaim Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh. See, the message is about Jesus Christ. The message is about who he really was, and what he really came to do. The message is about God in his true nature, as revealed from the scriptures. The fact that Christ came in the flesh is necessary to provide salvation to all those who receive Jesus Christ by faith. It is always, first and foremost, about the name, because It is only by the name of Jesus Christ that people can be saved. The word of God is clear and emphatic concerning the centrality and exclusivity of preaching the name of Jesus Christ. Acts 2.21, it says, And it shall be that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord, what? Will be saved. And then Acts 4.12, There is salvation in no one else, For there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. So brethren, we must never deviate from this particular truth. And always remember, everything else is secondary to that truth, such as feeding the poor, building projects, mercy projects, medical assistance, and humanitarian efforts, these things are important 
and should be part of the missions, but never at the expense of the exclusion of the preaching of the name of Jesus Christ and his saving gospel. We could never exclude that. They should both go together. A second thing that it says in 3 John, verse 7, is that they receive no support from unbelievers. It says, accepting nothing from the Gentiles. So they're not accepting money from other sources. Now, they, they purpose to step out in faith and to trust the Lord and his church to supply their needs. The church ought to understand and continue to teach that missionaries should be primarily funded by the church alone. It's the church that is the center of God's program. We, the church, are given the mandate to sustain and to show kindness only to those who bring the true gospel of Jesus Christ as far as specifically support, financial support. And then a third reason would be this, and this is an important one. Look at verse number 8. It says of 3 John. It says, Therefore we ought to support such men so that we may be fellow workers with the truth. See, that means it's connecting those who go with us. We ought to be supporting them because that makes us co-laborers. We cannot all go. We cannot all leave everything and go. See, we're to assist them so we continue to be joint workers with them. See, the job cannot be done by one or just a few. All of us can assist assist in some way. To review these reasons really reminds us to continue to demonstrate such generosity and hospitality to those who are going to go. Now, some of you have not realized that duty yet. So really, today, you may need to come to your scriptural senses and become an ally of the truth and be ready when called upon to show hospitality and generosity. And so today, here are the ways I think that we can ally with our five missionaries that were mentioned this morning by Greg. Uh, and endeavor to be part of the world that God called them to. And so the reason why we're asking you to separate your regular giving with your missions giving is so you can, be, you can take more of an interest by what you're giving by way of a faith promise to either all the missionaries or one or two of the missionaries all right, that our church family actually supports. So, in other words, acting uh, on these biblical truths has really desirable results because our hospitable and generous participation, no matter how small, makes you and I joint workers with those who go out with the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We together enter into their labors and so we're there with them. We're co-laborers with them because we're praying for them and we are interacting with them and we are giving to their support so they stay there. Chad 
Dexter and his wife and family in the Philippines, all right, we're co-laborers with them. And so, therefore, because we pray for them and we give to them, we are, in a sense, there with them, serving with them. And, and then Dan and uh, Sarah in, in Israel, he's giving the gospel to the Jews there in Israel, and, and he's, uh, he's, we're behind him, we're praying for him, we're giving to him. And then Brian... And Susan uh, Shortmire, they are, of course, with New Tribes Missions. They were in uh, Papua New Guinea for many years, and now he has an administrative role where he's working out of Florida. But we're praying for them. And then we have retired missionaries, Ken and Carlene Newton and Cal and Richie, uh, Cal and Mary Ritchie, who we are continuing to support in their retirement years. And so you and I are called upon, and that's why... Uh, I wanted to just mention about our faith promise this morning. Now, if you didn't receive one of these cards, um, either pick one up. If you did receive it, please take one and fill it out. And just mention to you that faith promise, what is it? It's scriptural. It is, it's really an act of faith. Uh, it, it, it should involve every member. It does a set a goal for the donor. It is sacrificial and Generous giving, meaning that it hurts a bit, uh, that you may need to deny something of yourself to be able to give to missions. It also, it's an organized approach to missionary giving. Um, It gives us a good sense on what you're thinking about giving, what, what, where your passion may lie. And, um, and then also each year, how we can increase the giving because we know how things go up, right? And, and so to try to give them a, a raise, in a sense, so they can stay on the field. And if they lost missionary support somewhere else, maybe we can help them so they can stay there. It's also local church-centered. Christ is working through the local church. But what it's not, it's not a pledge. It's not something that someone is going to come and collect from you. It is not determined on the basis of what you know you can give, but what you are willing to believe God for. Also, it's not taken away from your present giving and offerings to the local church. It is in in addition to what you are regularly giving. Now, how does it work? Well, by faith, each member contributes a certain amount on a weekly basis, but of course on a monthly, or calculating it on a monthly basis, which leads to you to promise uh, on a weekly, monthly, and then a yearly basis that you will, of course, uh, give to the program faithfully for that one year. We uh, realize that it's, it's better to just do it for one year instead of two years. And then remember, the offering is in addition to your regular giving and the promises made between you, the giver, and God so you must look to God to supply your needs so that you may give uh, by faith. And then when you honestly consider the conditions of the perishing heathen in the world, then you find out from Scripture it's more blessed to give than to receive. And that is a principle. And so how can I and you give the faith promise? Well, according to Second. Corinthians, and I'm not going to look at those verses. I'll just give you the points that come from it. 
the first thing you should do is surrender your will so you can give freely and sacrificially. It tells us in 2 Corinthians, for I testify that according to their ability and beyond their ability, they gave of their own accord. So the second thing is to submit yourself to the Lord. It says in 2 Corinthians 8, 5, and this not as we had expected, but they first gave themselves to the Lord and to us by the will of God. So submitting yourself to the Lord and then settling the amount the Lord wants you to give. It says in Second Corinthians 9, 7, each one must do just as he has purposed in his heart, not grudgingly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And then... Subscribe to the, the amount on your faith promise card. Uh, one thing that's interesting in, in Corinthians, uh, it says that there, I thought it necessary to urge the brethren that they would go on ahead to you and arrange beforehand your previously promised bountiful gift. So they promised it. And that's why we're looking at this as a promise. And then lastly, to set this amount aside each week and promise to give it fully for a year. And so, again, on that card, uh, you're, fill that out. Let us know how much, for example, if you wanted to give $5 uh, a month to each missionary, that would be $25 a, uh, a, I mean $5 a week or a month to each missionary. At the end of the month, you would have spent $25 to missions. And that, that list the, you know, just list the amount that you want to give and, and then uh, put the total on the bottom, and of course, we will do the rest. If you give a dollar weekly, then yearly, that would be $52. If you gave $2 in a year, you would have given $104 to missions. If you gave $5 in a year, it would be $260 to missions. If you give $10, then of course, it would be uh, $520 to missions. If you gave $25, it would be $1,300. If you gave $50, it would be like $2,600 uh, that you would give to missions. So break that up, and then on if you don't use offering envelopes, which you should because then you could, when you do your taxes, you can let the government know you gave this much, much to charity or wherever they, and then you can deduct it, and then you have more money coming back if you use these. Now, I know that not everybody uses them, but on there's a mission section, just put, how much you uh, are going to give uh, each week or divide it up uh, and then, or if you want to just give one mission envelope and say it's $25 for the month on uh, your mission envelope. All right, so, and another thing is that uh, soon we're going to have also online giving. Now, uh, the reason for that is I uh, realized that, do you know that only 30% of millenniums, uh, millennials, excuse me, uh, actually wrote out a check. All right, so that means that they they do everything online, right? And so therefore we're gonna we're gonna have uh, we're testing it out now, right? And we're gonna have online giving uh, pretty soon. All right, so again, I think that I pressed the point home uh, pretty emphatically. <laughs> uh, we should be participating in in giving to missions. It is a great blessing to be part of that. Now, let me just end with this. It was uh, a chaplain named uh, Chaplain McCabe who set out to raise 
actually $1 million for missions. Uh, But when he started out doing it, he was met with great disappointment and often was greatly discouraged. And one day, while he was going through his mail, there was a particular envelope that he noticed, and um, it was was a letter from a little boy, and the little boy uh, wrote him this letter in kind of a scrawlish, boyish boyish type of uh, printing, and he said to him, Dear Chaplain McCabe, I'm sure you're going to get a million dollars for missions. I'm not, I'm, I am going to help you get it too. So here's a nickel toward it. It's all I got right now, but if you need any more, just call on me. Now, what's interesting is this became this chaplain's most effective story in raising money. And uh, in fact, this little boy's tattered nickel multiplied and became a million dollars, and he helped more people than he could ever imagine. So see, it's, it's really the desire, the love for Christ to give, and then God takes it and multiplies it and uses it, uses it in ways that we would never even imagine. In fact, we may not even find out until we get to heaven. But just be faithful in it, and the blessing of the Lord comes when we are faithful in this way. Now, if anybody knows me, I am not a person who preaches on money and giving very often. Matter of fact, it's, it's very, uh, very large amounts of time in between I do that. Uh, but sometimes it's needed, right? And, uh, and so, and it's, of course, it's the heart of God to be able to give so the gospel can continue to go out, not only locally, but globally. Let's pray. Lord, this morning I do thank you again for those who have faithfully given over the years, and Lord, for those who are now being introduced to, uh, maybe for the first time, about giving to missions, and just, Lord, give them a sense from the Word of God how important this is to your heart, and we want to see, Lord, more participation in the missions giving, and so we can, Lord, keep them on the field, and we can see their support even over the years to increase. Lord, thank you uh, for your faithfulness to us in our personal lives. Thank you, Lord, that you supply our needs so richly. And I pray, Lord, as we consider the truths mentioned today, that you would just move our heart to and, and open our mouth to be faithful to share the gospel with people who have never heard it. Lord, open our mouth and, Lord, loosen our pockets so we can be faithful in the things that you've given us to give back so your work can go on locally and globally. And I thank you for what you have done and what you will do. In Christ's name, amen. Let's stand together.